So this morning, um, I have more that I want to talk about than can possibly be fit in to one sermon. Um, so I have no idea exactly where we're going we're gonna to go. I'm just going to follow the Lord as best as I can. Um, this morning, we're back in Acts chapter 9. And we're going to wrap up Acts chapter 9. And Luke shifts the story back to Peter. We've been focusing on, on Saul uh, the last couple weeks. And now he, Luke brings us back to, to Peter. And the second half of the book of Acts is going to make a shift. And the story is really going to shift from, from the Jerusalem church focused on Peter's ministry. And it's going to shift over to, to Paul's ministry and his first two missionary journeys beginning in chapter 13. Um, but but Peter or Luke shifts back to Peter. And one thing I, I felt drawn to talk about this morning is if you, if you were raised or have lived your life in a generally evangelical kind of background, th- there's this tendency to elevate Paul above everyone else. And kind of, you know, especially if you're from a Reformed background. And many of us have, have a Reformed background uh, of some sort. It's, and no one would say this, but sometimes Paul's talked about as if Paul's here and Jesus is actually here. Like that's how elevated how elevated Paul is, and, and I'm not di- diminishing. I mean, if you listen to the last two sermons I gave, you know that I'm not diminishing the work that Paul did and, and the, the significance of his ministry on, on the faith, but that's a total false dichotomy. When we rank apostles or rank biblical writers as to who's more important and whose word has the most impactfulness, on the, that's a totally foreign concept to the Spirit of God. And it was a totally foreign concept to Paul himself. Because how did Paul think of himself? When Paul, when Paul describes himself, he says, I'm the least of the apostles. And Paul, that's not false humility. That's not like some false, you know, false statement that Paul's saying about himself. He's, he's honestly looking around and he's looking at what like, the Lord's doing through the ministry of Peter and, and through James and this guy Apollos who shows up all of a sudden and has this powerful ministry. And I think Paul's honestly looking around and he's saying, I'm... Like, I'm not considering myself greater than these. And, and what happens when we have a favorite apostle, and, and we can have favorites in the sense of, like, people that we relate to and are drawn to in the scriptures. I certainly do, and that's a fine thing. But, but when we say one's more important than the other, then we, we essentially are relegating portions of scripture to a place that they were never, never meant to have. Because when we, when we read... Peter's epistles, they should carry the same weight as when we read Romans. And when, and when we read John's letters, they should carry the same weight. And, um, I mean, we all have those tendencies. So when I read, when I read the, the New Testament and I get to John, the, the Gospel of John, and I get to 1 John especially out of his epistles, the, the letters, those are the easiest for me to relate. Like, when I read those, I'm just like, oh, yeah, I get it. God is love, Right? God, God is good, his goodness, his love, his embrace, the intimacy with which John had, which you, like, it just resonates in my soul. I don't have to work hard to understand that. It just, it feels right to me. And then sometimes I read something that James writes, or something that Peter writes, or, or Paul, and I'm like, what? But that doesn't mean it's less important, just because it's not as easy for me to resonate in my own soul. It means that I have to wrestle with it and work through it. So the, the reason why I'm saying this is that when Luke shifts back to Peter after starting to tell the story of Saul, it's, it's important to remember that God is continuing to work 
in his people all over the place. And, and um, because of Acts and our, the way that the scriptures came together, it's easy to think that this thing became all about the ministry of Paul, but it was not. And it never was, and it was never meant to be all about the ministry of Paul. It was the ministry of the church, the saints spread out. So we're shifting back now to the story of Peter. And we're going to look at two healings in Acts chapter 9. Uh, Peter's going to heal a, a man who's lame, which has happened before. So this is a repeat. Uh, miracle, and then he's going to raise someone from the dead, which is always exciting. And um, as I was studying this week, those are very uplifting stories of like the power of healing ministry in people's lives. But as I was studying and I was, I was praying and just asking the Lord, what do you, what do you want to speak to us? What do you want to speak to me? What do you want to speak to Parkford Church this morning? What I actually was drawn to was not that not to focus on the encouragement of the healing, but to focus on where that leaves us today when we pray and we don't see healing. Because we have to like be honest, right? When, when we're reading these stories and we're seeing these amazing things happen, and then we look at situations in our lives that we've been praying for for years or things that seem out of place and there's no healing there, we're left in a really tough spot of tension. Surely you can relate to that, right? That, that struggle. So, so just, um, just to give you a little foretaste of where, where we're going this morning, is I, I want to actually talk about the problem of evil, which is, which is theologically like the great problem that, that all Christians and all people have to struggle with. The, the, the fact that there is evil and suffering in this world, and what in the world do we do with that? So at this point, I'm going to read the story, and as, as you read it, just be honest. Like, if, if it excites you, be excited, rejoice. If it brings you to that place of, but what about the situations in, in my life or my friend's life or my family's life where there's struggle, then, then let yourself go to that place too, and we'll allow God to speak there. Does that make sense? All right, so be honest with the Word of God. That's what I'm inviting you to be. Don't be fake. Be honest with the Word of God. All right, would you stand? And we're going to read Acts chapter 9 starting at verse 32. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas bedridden for eight years who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they returned to the Lord. Now there were, was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed, And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. 
And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Heavenly Father, thank you for these stories. They're amazing stories. Thank you for the healing of Aeneas. Thank you for the resurrection of Dorcas, that that touch of prayer that happens, the power of prayer that that we see in in this story. God, thank you for the ministry uh, that you entrusted to Peter and have handed down to your saints, your people, your children throughout the ages to pray for one another and see God do a miraculous healing work. What an incredible gift. But we also come to you today, God, wrestling with the fact that many of the things that we pray for, um, we don't see the answer that we hope for. And so we're left in a place where we need to be honest and talk about those things with you and allow your spirit to speak. So shape our minds. Help us think like you think, God. Help us see like you see, Jesus. Help us receive your words to abide in you in such a way that our hearts are aligned with you. God, again, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would be the one who teaches each of us this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. You can be seated. As I was thinking about this this morning, I I got up early and was reading, and my daughter came out, and I was reading in Jeremiah, actually, and In Jeremiah chapter 12, the Lord's talking to Jeremiah about how he's going to have compassion, that word compassion, on his people. And as I'm reading in Jeremiah, Gracie, my five-year-old daughter who gave me the candy, she she came out and sat next to me on the couch and she asked me to read out loud to her. So so I was reading from Jeremiah, but she was, I could tell, like, she couldn't really, she wasn't really tracking as I was reading from Jeremiah. And so I, I said, how about I read from from somewhere else, like about Jesus. And she said, yeah, that, that's a good idea. So, so I just flipped to Matthew, and it fell open to, uh, I think it was Matthew 14. And what's amazing, it was the feeding of the 5,000 in Matthew 14, and I was just reading about God taking compassion on his people in Jeremiah, and I, and I just flipped randomly to, to read a story from the Gospels to Gracie. And, and the first words I read are, Jesus looked at the crowd, and he had compassion on them. And there was just like one of those moments where like just shivers ran down my spine and I thought about God answering that ancient prayer on the suffering of his people. His answer is compassion. God's answer to all the pain and all the suffering and sickness, the the hunger, all of those things is compassion. So this morning I did a little research on that word compassion and it shows up a bunch of times, it, just in Matthew. And it shows up in the Gospels several times. And the word that's translated as compassion, what, what it actually means is you feel something like this. Oh! You ever, you ever felt something like that? Oh! When you see something broken, or you see a little child who's sick on a deathbed, or... You have that that feeling where it's not a word that you feel. It's not even really a rational emotion that you feel. It's just a, oh. And that's literally what that word means. So when Jesus, 
In Matthew chapter 9, it says, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt, oh, compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. This was the passage I read with Gracie this morning. Matthew 14, it says, Now when Jesus heard about John, so he hears about the death of his cousin. This person he loved. This injustice. This pain. This grief. This prayer that God didn't answer. Because I guarantee you, John had disciples and friends and family that were praying that he would be delivered from death. But he was beheaded. He was killed, and justice reigned in this situation. Now, when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. He was going away to grieve. Jesus was removing himself from all his ministry and all the people in his life so he could be angry and sad and grieve and weep over this situation. And when the people heard of this, they followed him. Poor guy. (laughs) He's just trying to get a moment to grieve with dad. And, and he's surrounded. When you're in a place of grief, the last thing you want is a bunch of people asking you for something. And yet all of these people surround him, asking him, demanding something from him. And what is his response? When he went ashore, he saw a huge crowd and he felt compassion oh, for them. And he healed their sick. Again, this word shows up in Matthew 15. The next chapter it says, and Jesus called his disciples to him. And he said, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. I'm sorry, that was the passage I read with Gracie this morning, Matthew 15. And I do not want to send them away hungry for they might faint on the way. So when he sees disease, when he sees death, when he sees hunger, what is the response of our Lord and Savior, Jesus? Compassion. Oh, compassion. Don't send them away hungry. Feed them. Again, in Matthew 20, it says, as they were leaving Jericho, so Jesus is leaving Jericho, and now he's taking a direct line across the Jordan, or he's crossed the Jordan, he's uh, gone to Jericho, and now he's going to um, Jerusalem to, to die. And he knows what he's doing. As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him, and two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet. But they cried out all the more, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. And moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes. And immediately they regained their sight and followed him. There's other places that it shows up in Matthew, and then uh, that word appears in Mark and Luke as well. So when we look at the the stories in Acts chapter 9, Peter, who's embodying the ministry of Jesus, if, if, if I can call you back to our introduction to the book of Acts, we talked about how the book of Acts is part two of Luke. So Luke is part one. Acts is part two. It's one work in two different scrolls that that Luke wrote, the same author. 
And at the beginning of Acts, it says, this is the continuing work of Jesus Christ. So this is how Jesus continues to work uh, in his people. So Peter's ministry in this chapter is a continuation of the ministry of Jesus. It's still Jesus's ministry of compassion, but now it's continuing through his people. And I would say that you and I walk in that same authority and that same calling, that whenever we do ministry, we're continuing the work of Jesus. So the context, of course, is right after Saul is sent off to Tarsus. We looked at that last week after he's a new believer. And it says the church then had peace throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, and it became stronger as the believers lived in the fear of the Lord. And with the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, it also grew in numbers. Meanwhile, so while all this is taking place with Saul, meanwhile, Peter traveled from place to place, and he came down to visit the saints in the town of Lydda. Now, the NLT, which I often use, the New Living Translation, it, it translates that word that I've got in brackets. It translates it as, as the believers, but it's not, that's not what that word is. The word is saints, and we shouldn't gloss over that. That's really important. Because the word saints has been historically misused and misrepresented in in church history. It's this word, agias. And all that that means is a holy person. Now in the New Testament, this word is always used to signify a group of people. That word is never used of one person. So if you think about the significance of that, it's it's never put on a single person. Whenever that word is used in the entire New Testament... It's always used of a group of people. It does not describe a special class or super spiritual people. Rather, the term means that the followers of Christ are holy or set apart in the holiness of God. If you remember in Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul is writing about the gifts that are given to the church, the fivefold ministry, he says that the apostles, prophets, uh, pastors, teachers, and evangelists, not in that order, sorry, but those five gifts that they're given to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And I'm sure this has been taught on here before uh, by Tim and, and others in the past, but what that means is that the work of ministry is actually to be done by you, not the vocational minister. That doesn't mean that I don't do ministry. I certainly am called to do ministry. I'm, I'm called to minister to my family, to my neighbors, to you all. But you all have the same call to the ministry as I have. This is the priesthood of all believers, right? You are to minister with the same uh, day-to-day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, listening to God and following him uh, in, in the patterns that he would have you live. Now, the fivefold ministry, those gifts that God has given to the church, the point of those is to equip. So the gift that God has given me, at least in this portion of my life, is to be a shepherd or a pastor. And so my job is to equip you or one of my roles is to equip you for the work of the ministry. Not to do it all myself. Now, you, you all know that, um, but you are to carry it out. And that's part of what it means to be the saints. So Peter is traveling around to these early churches visiting the saints. These are people just like you. Who work all sorts of jobs. Who have all sorts of family situations. Normal, regular Salt of the earth, blue collar, white collar, whatever, whatever their occupation was, these are normal people. And how God views them and how God views you is you and they are saints. You are the holy ones of God. So Peter, 
Whoops, let me go back. Meanwhile, Peter traveled from place to place and came down to visit the saints in the town of Lydda. There he met a man named Aeneas who had been paralyzed and bedridden for eight years. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your sleeping mat. And he was healed instantly. This is so characteristic Peter. He doesn't even ask the guy if he wants to be healed. Right? He just walks up to him. Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up. Take up your mat. Roll it up. Get out of here. Don't let the door hit you. Thank you, Peter. This is amazing. What, the, what this tells me, though, and I think this is one of the points that the, that the Lord wants to teach us and remind us and me this morning, is that Peter was living a life of prayer. This has been one of the, one of the themes in Acts, that they were devoted to prayer. So when Peter gets into the room with Aeneas, he's already been devoted to prayer. He's been listening and talking to God. And so there is an immediate acknowledgement and access to God's will. He doesn't have to stop and say, hold on, Aeneas, let me listen to the Lord for 10 minutes to see what he thinks. Peter, walking in the Spirit, already abiding in God, knows the will of, the God, will of God in real time. He knows it moment by moment because he's been abiding. Who here wants to know God's will in real time? Wow. Wow, I want to know God's will in real time. I don't want to have to tell people. Sometimes it's appropriate. Give me some time to pray about this before I do this situation. That, that, that's a good, wise response in many situations. But I want to walk with the Lord with such intimacy that I, can, that I can go into a room and know what God wants because I've been walking with God. And that's what God has for you too as his spirit dwells within you, to be in real time with him in such a way that when you come into situations with people, you already know what the Lord desires because you've been walking with him. So this is what's happened with Peter. He's been abiding with Jesus. He's been walking with Jesus, praying, filled with the spirit, and he comes and he already knows this is someone that God wants to heal. Get up, Aeneas. Then the whole population of Lydda, verse 35, and Sharon, saw Aeneas walking around, and they turned to the Lord. Earlier, I mentioned that a group of us pray on Friday mornings. And this past Friday, um, a brother, Frank, was with us, and he shared the verse that God's kindness leads us to repentance. You know that verse? God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. And as I was looking at this passage later in the day on Friday, I was thinking about that prayer from Frank. And I was thinking about that, that word, that God's kindness leads us to repentance, and that's literally what we see in this passage. God's kindness to Aeneas leads the town to repentance. What is the literal definition of repent? To turn. To turn and walk the other direction. Look at, look at the words. Then the whole population of Lydda and Sharon saw Aeneas walking around, God's kindness, and they turned to the Lord. They repent to the Lord. God's healing power, his kindness, is meant to lead us to repentance. So whenever we see an act of mercy on Jesus, that Jesus pours out in our lives or in the lives of our brothers and sisters, it's meant to lead us to repentance. Verse 36, there was a believer in Joppa named Tabitha, which in Greek is Dorcas. Anybody know what that name means, like translated into English? Gazelle. 
which I think there's this beautiful significance. Do you remember what the lover of the king is described as in the Song of Solomon? Gazelle. Gazelle, her name, this this believer, this uh, woman, her beauty is not, I, I I have no idea what she looked like, but her beauty was not her physical appearance. Her beauty was that she was a lover of the Lord, and the Lord loved her. Whenever you interact with someone who's deeply in love with God, and God's deeply in love with that person, there's nothing more beautiful than that. You can't encounter a more beautiful person, a more beautiful soul than the soul that's in love with Jesus. And Tabitha is in love. She loves the Lord, like the lover in in Song of Solomon. There was a believer in Joppa, so this is a town that's close by to where Peter was in Lydda, named Tabitha, which means Dorcas. She was always doing kind things for others and helping the poor. She had compassion, like Jesus did. About this time, She became ill and died. Her body was washed for burial and laid in an upstairs room. But the believers had heard that Peter was nearby at Lydda. So they sent two men to beg him, please come as soon as possible. That phrase that they sent two men to beg him, what that means is they're not telling him what to do. They're not demanding this is a very respectful request. It's a humble request. These, these two men come to Peter. He's nearby, and they say, Could you, would you please consider coming? This woman has been serving us. She's really a key figure in the church. Please come as soon as possible. So Peter returned with them, and as soon as he arrived, they took him to the upstairs room. The room was filled with widows who were weeping and showing him the coats and other clothes that Dorcas had made for them. Maybe some of the women were even dressed in the clothes that she made. Look, she made this for me. In, in, this, in this culture, in the Jewish culture, they would wait to bury the body, uh, typically for three days, um, because the, the belief was that the soul departed from the body after the, the third day. So this, they haven't buried her yet. It's before the third day. But Peter asked them all to leave the room. Then he knelt and prayed. Turning to the body, he said, Get up, Tabitha. And as she opened her eyes, and she opened her eyes, when she saw Peter, she sat up. He gave her his hand and helped her up. Then he called in the widows and all the believers, and he presented her to them alive. The news spread throughout the whole town, and many believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed a long time in Joppa, living with Simon, a tanner of hides. So again, we see God's kindness leads to repentance. Verse 42, the good news of what happened with Dorcas, with Tabitha, spread throughout the whole town, and many believed, many turned to the Lord. And Peter stayed a long time in Joppa, living with Simon, a tanner of hides. Now the very next chapter is this magnificent chapter in Acts. And we'll look at this next week. When Peter has the vision of the sheet being lowered with the unclean foods in it, and the the Spirit of God says to him, take it and eat. And he says, no, I can't. And that's connected to the story of Cornelius, the Gentile, who becomes the first Gentile believer. He and his household, they're baptized and receive the Holy Spirit. So now the gospel is going to go not just to the Jews, not just to the Samaritans and Jews, but now to the Gentiles. And the rest of the book of Acts is about how the gospel is going 
out into the Gentiles, and chapter 11 is like the gateway to that. So this is before that. But Peter is staying with this man named Simon, who shares the same name as Peter. So it's not Simon Peter, it's Simon the Tanner. By the sea in Joppa. In the Jewish culture, a tanner, a tanner would, would have been uh, not kosher. It, w- it would have been not clean because he would have been dealing with dead animals and carcasses. So by the very nature of his job, he would have been unclean and, and unfit for worship. Now, uh, Peter's not a Pharisee, and he never was. He was a, a humble fisherman before he was a disciple. But he would have avoided a man like that at an earlier time in his life. Because by proxy, by, by touch, he himself would have become unclean by touching a person who is unclean. But we see Peter here who has been transformed and is being transformed, continuing to be transformed by the gospel. He seems to have no reservations whatsoever. He stays with this tanner, this man that many Jews would have avoided, with no, no qualms, no problems. He's staying with here. And I think it's so cool that the, the revelation of the, un, the food and, and, uh, and the whole story with Cornelius, it happens while Peter is staying with this man who culture and society would have considered unfit and unclean. Isn't that beautiful? God's setting the stage for that work. Peter's staying with this man. In fact... Tanners weren't allowed to have their, their shops in the towns where they lived. They, have, they had to live outside of the towns because no one wanted to touch them or, or be close to them. So this man, uh, by nature of his job, which was probably handed down from his dad, which was handed down from his dad, he had to live outside of the city. He wasn't allowed to actually be in the town. And so Peter is staying with this humble man who's got this business and uh, staying with him, and it says that he stayed with him. For a long time. All right. While we were reading the story of Dorcas being raised from the dead, was anyone else reminded of another healing story from the Gospels? Who's, what's that? The little girl. There are so many parallels between the raising of Dorcas and Jesus raising the little girl from the dead. Notice how Peter kicked everybody out of the room. No one was allowed to be in there. Notice how he prayed first. And then he spoke to her. So this, uh, this story is told in, in both Mark and Luke. Um, I'm going to do the Mark version real quick. In Mark chapter 5, it says that Jesus got into the boat again and went back to the other side of the lake where a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. Then a leader of the local synagogue, whose name was Jairus, arrived. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him. My little daughter is dying, he said. Please come and lay your hands on her. Heal her so she can live. Jesus went with him and all the people followed, crowding around him. This is one of the most beautiful stories in all of the scriptures, this story right here. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years from constant bleeding. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors. And over the years, she's living in chronic pain, chronic just suffering for 12 long years. The prayers are not being answered. And over the years, she had spent everything she had to pay them. She's bankrupted herself on medical bills. But she had gotten no better. She's paid all her money and seen no results. In fact, she had gotten worse 
for all that she had paid for help, she gets worse. Anybody ever feel like they've done that? For all the prayers they prayed and all the money they spent, it gets worse, not better. She had heard about Jesus, so she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe. For she thought to herself, if I could just touch his robe, I will be healed. Immediately the bleeding stopped. And she could feel in her body that she had been healed of her terrible condition. Jesus realized at once that healing power had gone out from him. So he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my robe? The disciples said to him, look at this crowd pressing around you. How can you ask who touched me? But he kept on looking around to see who had done it. Then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell to her knees in front of him and told him what she had done. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. Meanwhile, as he was speaking to her, messengers arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. They told him, your daughter is dead. There's no use troubling the teacher now. Don't bother him. But Jesus overheard them and said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just have faith. What an odd thing to hear when you've just found out that your daughter died. Don't be afraid, just have faith. Thank you. (laughs) That helps. The story goes on, then Jesus stopped the crowd and wouldn't let anyone go with him except Peter, James, and John. So it's the inner three the brother of James, when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw much commotion and weeping and wailing. He went inside and asked, why all this commotion and weeping? This child isn't dead. She's only asleep. The crowd laughed at him, but he made them all leave. He took the girl's father and mother and his three disciples into the room where the girl was lying. Holding her hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up. And the girl who was 12 years old immediately stood up and walked around. They were overwhelmed and totally amazed. Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell anyone what had happened. And then he told them to give her something to eat. So Peter, who was there in that room with Jesus, just a couple of years before this, he's in that room with Jesus. He remembers, I guarantee you he remembered that story, that that event. I mean, that is not something you forget, right? That is the kind of thing that is burned into your memory and into your soul. Peter enters this room, this beloved daughter of God, who's older, but beloved daughter of God who's died, and he kicks everyone out of the room. He does what Jesus does, and he gets down and he prays, and after he prays, he speaks to her, get up, wake up, Tabitha, and she opened her eyes, just like the little girl. You remember the bracelets that everyone used to wear, the WWJD, what would Jesus do? You remember that, that phrase? It was really big. And we kind of, I, I kind of laugh at that whole thing every once in a while. But, but that is like a really good question, right, <laughs> that we should probably be asking day to day. What, what would Jesus do in this situation? But I would say there's a better way to ask that question. And, and the better way isn't, What would Jesus do? Because that kind of leaves it to you to figure out what he would do. I would say that the better way to ask it is, what is Jesus doing? Because I better do the same thing he's doing. Now, if the book of Acts is the continuing work of Jesus, then Peter wasn't asking, what would Jesus do? He was asking, what are you doing? 
and getting into alignment with that. And, and so rather than us living our lives, walking around saying WWJD, what would Jesus do? We should be walking around saying, what is Jesus doing? And then align ourselves. You, you see the gentle nudge, the, the real gentle shift in that? The one, the one would be in your own wisdom, you figure out what Jesus would have done in the situation. But when you're asking what he's doing, it means that you actually believe that he's present and he's actually working right now. And if Jesus is actually present and he's actually working right now, that changes my faith completely than just what would he have done if he were here. Because if his spirit lives in you, which it does, if you've been adopted through the blood of Christ, then guess where Jesus is? Wherever you are. The kingdom of the heavens is advancing. How does the kingdom of the heavens advance? By people going places with Jesus in them. So anytime you encounter a new situation or a new people who don't know Jesus, you've advanced the kingdom of God because you've carried the king in you wherever you've gone. So what is Jesus doing? That's the question I believe that that Peter is asking. All right, now to bring this thing full circle. What about those who pray but aren't healed? And what about the problem of evil? Because these stories are all fine and dandy. But the fact is that I've got people in my life right now that I deeply love, that are suffering, that I'm praying for, and I'm not seeing them rise from the dead, and I'm not seeing them healed of their diseases. Now, let me say this. I have seen people healed. Like, I've personally been present when people have been physically healed, and there is nothing more wonderful in this world than being a part of an experience like that. That is an amazing experience. So don't hear me say otherwise or belittle it. But what about the many other times that I've been present with someone who's suffering or someone who's dying or someone who's sick and there is no healing. What about those times? Is Jesus not present then? Is his goodness not good then? What's the first prayer many of our children learn to pray? God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. God's great and he's good. If God's great, that means he's all-powerful, right? If he's all-powerful, then couldn't he just snuff out pain and suffering and evil like that with a snap of his fingers? Well, if he could do that, and he can do that, we believe he can do that, but he doesn't do that, then doesn't that mean he's not good? Or is it that God is good, we believe that God is good, which means he would take care of all the pain and all the suffering, but he's not great. He's not all-powerful. He's just good. If either of those are true, if God is great but he's not good, or if God is good but he's not great, we are a people without hope. Because if he's great but he's not good, that means that he's just fickle and ambivalent and he doesn't care. And so he could change things, but he doesn't really want to because he doesn't really care. But if God is good, then doesn't that mean he would intervene? Why would a good God allow for suffering and pain, right? We've all asked this. Why does bad things happen to people who walk with the Lord? And and goodness, this is one of the common questions in the scriptures. God, don't you see this is Jeremiah's prayer in Jeremiah 11 that I was reading this morning. Here I am, walking with you, giving my life to you, and everyone else is prospering while I suffer. What gives? Now, if God is good, but he's not all-powerful, then we're without hope because he's impotent, and he can't actually change things. 
This is the problem of evil. This is what every theologian, every philosopher, everyone who believes in God has had to wrestle with at some point. How do we encounter a world of pain and suffering where prayers are not answered, even though we see them answered sometimes? How, do we, how are we supposed to walk with God? Is he good? Is he great? Is he both? Is he one or the other? Which is it? Now, I believe with all my heart that the scriptures teach that he is both good and he is great. I believe with all my heart that God is all-powerful and he is loving. I believe that he is not fickle. There's nothing fickle about our God. In fact, I believe that if we were to translate his characteristics into modern English, one of his defining characteristics is that God is a gentleman. God is a gentleman. And he treats you like a gentleman. Many of you ladies in here have encountered men who do not treat you like a gentleman. Have you not? That is not how God treats us. God is a gentleman. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Don't bust down that door, although he could. He certainly has the right and the ability and the power to just kick down the door, but he doesn't. He stands outside like a gentleman and knocks. I will wait for you to open that door for me. And if you do, I'll come in and I'll eat with you. One of God's defining characteristics, excuse my language for one second, but this is important, God will not rape you. He's a gentleman. He's good. But he's also all-powerful. So what do we do with all the pain and all the suffering? That's part of it. But when your little child dies, that's not a helpful thing to be told. Just trust God, Right? That could be the least helpful thing to be told. Evil encounters us on two levels, I believe. We encounter evil on a personal level, a relational level with God. So um, when I encounter suffering, it hits me as a person with a heart. Right? It hits me on a personal relational level with God. Why? Why, God? recently heard a story from a brother about a little child who, who, uh, who died. This, this beautiful little girl. Why? It's not okay. <laughs> it's not okay. And on a, on a relational level, that's, that hits me on a personal heart level with God. And there's no, I don't have to work that out mentally. I can just be angry about that. We can just be angry about the fact that there's injustice and evil in this world. It would, be, it would be terrible if we weren't. But it also hits us on a mental level, on a theological level. That's what theology is. When you think about God, you're doing theology. So you're a theologian. If you think about God, you're a theologian. That's what theology is, thinking about God. It hits us on a theological level, and it's that question of why is there evil? How could an all-powerful and good and loving God allow for there to be suffering? There's natural evil, which is like storms and fires and floods. I have uh, two cousins. Um, this is back in the uh, 60s that they were serving God as missionaries in Papua New Guinea. And um, there was a tsunami that hit while they were out on a boat. And these twin babies uh, were drowned. Um, and this is my, these were my dad's first cousins. And I, I know their brother, who, you know, their, their older brother, my uncle Keith. I grew up with him. He's an awesome guy. 
Um, but he had a little brother and sister that were killed in a tsunami wave while his family were missionaries out in Papua New Guinea serving the Lord. Why? Why? It was just a random storm. An earthquake hit in the middle of the ocean, which caused a massive wave, unexpected, which hit their boat. And those who survived, the mom and the dad and the twins' older brother, swam 10 miles to, to shore. My, yeah, my, my dad's cousin, Chip, he was just a kid at the time. He swam 10 miles uh, to survive. So there's natural evil, and we all encounter that in storms and fires and floods and what's happening in California with the fires and all of that. And then there's more moral evil, wars, murder, injustice, racism, classism, and so on. All of the things, because people choose to be evil. People choose to do things out of alignment with God. When an experience calls into question either the goodness or the greatness, the power of God, the effects of evil are being experienced on emotional, personal, and relational level. When an experience with evil is wrestled with intellectually, we are engaging with the situation on a theological level. This is when we wrestle with the problem of evil in general. How can evil exist if God is both good and great? And I actually want to invite you into that struggle. Some of you have probably been taught to avoid that wrestle, and that's a very unhealthy thing. You should wrestle with God. When, I, when I've used that phrase before, do business with God, this is what I'm talking about. You should wrestle with God. When working through situations where evil touches our lives, and this is a teaching moment for you. When you are encountering people in your life who are suffering because of evil, please receive some wisdom from what I believe the scriptures teach. We need to recognize the personal and the theological implications of the suffering of the people that we encounter. To ignore the personal pain, to ignore the reality and, and just throw a statement on there, a Christianese statement on there, is incredibly insensitive. So when, you're, when we're encountering people who are suffering to say, well, God's going to work it out for his good, or God intends what was evil, he'll do for good, or, or just one of those like, just statements that we slap on when we don't know what to say to someone who's hurting. It's better to be quiet than to say that. Allow them to feel the pain that they feel. Jesus felt compassion. Peter didn't say to him, God's going to work it out, Jesus. Right. God loves these people. Don't worry about it. He'll take care of them. No, Jesus, oh, that's a good and godly experience. When you are with suffering or with pain and someone else and it hits you, compassion. We are to mourn with those who mourn and grieve with those who grieve. When you are encountering someone who's grieving or mourning, don't try to make them happy. (laughs) Grieve with them. God doesn't try to make you happy when you're sad. He grieves with you. To To ignore that relational level is incredibly insensitive and out of alignment with God. But to ignore the theological problem, it's not just insensitive, but it's actually intellectually insulting. We are to love God not just with our hearts, but we're actually to love God with our minds. And so when you encounter someone who's wrestling with their faith or struggling with doubt, again, these platitudes, these Christianese statements is not what's most helpful. What's most helpful is to enter in to the wrestle with them. Join them in the place of their struggle and and be with them in it. 
this is personal for me. This is really personal for me. When John, when John uh, the Baptist is in prison, and he's got people praying for him that'll be freed, and he, what does he start to do? He starts to doubt. He starts to struggle and wrestle with God, and he sends a messenger to Jesus. Was all this in vain? Was everything I did in vain? Was it just a waste of time? Are you the one that, I mean, he's, he's the one who a few chapters ago had boldly proclaimed this, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And here he is, he's suffering, he's in jail, and he sends a messenger, and, he, and he's just honest. I, I don't actually know. I thought I knew. I, I don't actually know if I know if I know that you're the one who is to come. And if you remember what Jesus says, he says the, the lame are healed, the blind see, the dead are raised to life. And he, he goes, go, go tell John what you see in here. But then he says to the crowds, blessed is the one who's not offended because of me. It is okay to struggle and wrestle and question and doubt. And I've taught on this before. The, the one thing I would caution with that is doubt is never meant to be the place that we live. It's a place we walk through. And there is a big difference between the two. When you pitch your tent in a place of doubt and you say, all the, we can't know anything, it's impossible to know anything for sure, and it's all relative truth, and, and I cannot for sure know that there's God, and, and whatever. I remember, uh, I think it was Stephen Hawking said, even if the stars would align and say, I am God in the heavens, I wouldn't believe that he was, because I would believe that was just happenstance, random coincidence. There's a scientific explanation for it. That's not a good place to live. That's not a helpful, healthy place to live, where we pitch our tent in a place of doubt where, where God can't, isn't allowed to show up. On the other hand, if you're not allowed to walk through doubt, you will be such a shallow person. You'll be such a shallow person in your faith. Because God, in the wilderness, <laughs> you ever been in the wilderness? That's where God grows a soul. When you are out in the wilderness asking God, the hard questions. That is when a soul grows in God. So we have to allow ourselves and other people to walk through places of doubt and struggle. Now, one, one thing to note, and I think I've said this before, but it's so helpful when we're praying for people who are suffering. You know all the people that Jesus raised from the dead died again? Right? So Lazarus was raised from the dead, but then he died. Peter raised Dorcas from the dead, but then she died. The little boy in Luke 7, not the young man in Luke 7, the widow of the, her only son, this widow only son, Jesus sees her coming out of the town, Luke 7, and he goes over to the funeral procession, <laughs> interrupts the funeral procession, weighs him down, flags him down. He walks over and, and raises the young man. He died again. For every single one of us, every single person who's ever lived, there will come a point before Christ's return, there will come a point where that prayer will be, the answer will be no. For every one of us. Now there are those I've heard in in the church say that God wants to heal every single person, like their bodies. I don't know. I, I don't know. I believe that God wants to heal every person's soul and spirit. But God often says no when it comes to our bodies. He often says no. And this is where it's so important to remember that Peter, 
when he goes in these situations, he's been praying. He's been listening. How many people did Jesus not heal? The Gospels are very careful to tell us that there are people that Jesus did not heal. So for even those God does heal, they will die until the ultimate resurrection when Christ returns. And here's what I'd say. Do you remember the story when, and this is kind of my concluding thought for, for this morning. I know there's been a lot here. You remember when Jesus went up to the Mount of Transfiguration with the same three, Peter, James, and John? And then he comes down and he finds his disciples trying to cast out a demon, but they can't do it. So they're coming from this mountaintop experience, and they come down literally from the mountaintop experience, and they encounter the other, the other uh, nine disciples have been trying to cast out a demon, and they're unable to. And then Jesus, he casts out the demon, and the boy is healed. And then later the disciples ask him, why were we not able to cast this demon out? And do you remember what Jesus says to them? This only comes out through much prayer and fasting. Before praying for someone, this is, this is my last teaching thing for you this morning. Whether you're visiting someone in the hospital or you're talking to someone on the phone, someone who desires healing, who's got chronic pain or suffering or disease, illness, whatever it is, before praying for someone for healing, you should, out loud, I'm talking about out loud, you should ask God first what his will is. What, what is your desire, God? Every person I encounter who's on their deathbed, every person I encounter who's sick, I pray for them in my spirit that they would be healed. Every single person. So when you've got a cold and you tell me you've got a cold, I pray for you immediately that you'd be healed. What I'm learning, what I'm trying to learn is before I speak that out loud, especially if I'm going to say it authoritatively, God's going to heal you, I had better know for sure (laughs) what God wants to do before I open my mouth. Should, I, should we pray for every single person? Yes, we should pray at all times for all people. Sometimes, though, we should keep that inside. Because, and this is a very, very real situation for, for people. What happens when you encounter a child and you t- that, who's sick on their deathbed and, and someone tells their parents, God's going to heal her, and then she dies? They're not going to trust God. They're not going to trust his word. They're not going to trust his people. And they're going to be deeply wounded. Or what happens if you encounter a little child who has an illness and you say God's going to heal you and God doesn't heal that person but they continue to live. They don't die but they live with that chronic pain and suffering. They, for the rest of their lives, are going to distrust that statement. Do not hear me say don't pray for healing. By all means, pray for healing. But wrestle with God And be intimate with God. There are some things that you have to have much prayer and fasting before you can encounter. And I I would say that there are probably, that's more often than we think. Where we have got to be walking with such abiding intimacy with Jesus before we encounter these situations. Especially if we're going to prophetically declare something over someone. Because Jesus, the spirit of Jesus, is the spirit of prophecy. Revelation teaches that the testimony of Jesus is what actual prophecy is. 
All right, this was really heavy stuff, and a lot of, of stuff. I want to encourage you, church, to wrestle with God through the difficult things, to be compassionate. Be compassionate. Let me draw you back to that word. What is God's answer to the problem of evil? I would say it's Jesus' compassion. That ultimately, what his response to evil is, is compassion. And so when he, ex- when he encounters evil, he is compassionate. So when you encounter evil, when I encounter evil, we are to be the same. We are to be compassionate. This is from um, Millard Erickson's Systematic Theology when he's wrestling with this question. I was planning on reading more, but I'm not going to. I'm just going to read a little bit. He says, why does not God eradicate evil now? Perhaps, however, the only way to eradicate evil now would be to destroy every single moral agent possessing a will capable of leading to evil. You get that? If God were to eradicate evil, it means he would have to eradicate everyone who is capable of evil. And then he asked this question, and I ask it of us today. Who of us, who of you, can claim such perfection as to say that you do not contribute to the evil of this world, either by commission, by doing something, or by omission, by not doing something, by word, deed, or thought? This eradication of evil would mean wiping out the entire human race, or at least the vast majority of it. It would not be sufficient to have him remove only what we think of as evil, or what we want to be removed, everything that is actually evil would have to be removed. But if you remember the word of God, God, however, has promised that he will never again wipe out virtually the entire human race. Genesis, the flood story, 6 through 9. And he cannot go back on his promise. So as the praise team comes up, I want want you to quiet your hearts for a minute. And I want you to enter into a space with the Lord where you can feel, receive, and give his compassion. So receive his compassion for yourself. Receive his compassion for the people that you don't like because he's compassionate for them too. Receive his compassion for you in the ways that you don't like yourself because he's compassionate for you fully. And allow that compassion that the Lord pours out to you to pour out to others. God, we receive your compassion this morning. We struggle with suffering and pain, sin, death, disease, evil. It makes us angry. It hits us on theological levels. It hits us on relational, emotional levels. We're encouraged by these stories in the scripture. We're encouraged when we see see healing, but we're also left in a place where we've got to wrestle with you because there are prayers that we don't see answered. Lord, I believe that you desire every single person. None would perish. Every single soul, every single spirit would have a touch from you to know you as Lord and Savior. And often that means bodies being healed. Praise God. Hallelujah. Often that means disease being cured. Praise God. Hallelujah. But Lord, let us be. My prayer for us this morning is that we would be compassionate even as you are compassionate. We love you, God. We pray this in your name.